0: please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 to 20, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. When Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is God's word. We started a a new series, a brief intermission series. We'll be doing this from time to time to remind our people, as we grow as a community, of our vision, the vision of Metro Presbyterian Church. And we had a a brief refresher last week on what the gospel is. Today, we're going to start at least just a few short series, uh, three sermons on movement. What does the core value of movement mean here at Metro Prez? And what we mean by that is this. Christianity, it didn't advance through a culture of subversion, dividing and conquering, but rather through conversion. Not subversion, but conversion. And as a result, Metro Presbyterian Church has to build in itself a culture of transformation, a culture of renewal. And it only happens through the gospel. And, and this account, this passage, famous passage, I mean, if, you, if you've ever uh, had any knowledge of the church growing up, then you know that this is the last event of Jesus' physical ministry here on earth. And, and Matthew, the book of Matthew is interesting because he doesn't just give you an account of history, but he follows the, every account of history with a teaching of Jesus. So he's not just reporting on historical events, but rather what he does is, you know, because if, if he just does that, he's leaving the interpretation up to you, what all these things mean. But rather what he does is he injects Jesus' teachings, his sayings. And we get to see then as a result, Jesus' own interpretation of these historical events that are uh, accounted for in Scripture. Jesus' teachings are his interpretations of the accounts in Matthew. And so this account, very, very famous account, this is uh, where Jesus explains the ministry, the the meaning of the resurrection. Now traditionally, if you look at chapter 28 in Matthew, we see the resurrection. And then I used to see the resurrection, and after that I saw the Great Commission, and they're considered two separate things. But rather what you see here, in actuality, the Great Commission is Jesus' interpretation of the resurrection we have all the other gospels to account for their interpretation of of what they saw and what the resurrection means but here we get to hear jesus's own interpretation of why he died and why he rose again and this is the key to transformation individually but then also a movement of renewal transformation of the city transformation of the world it's not enough what I'm saying here is it's not enough to believe in the fact of the resurrection. The fact has to change you. Human beings discovered gold. Americans discovered gold in the in 1840s in California. But just knowing that fact is not going to change you. And in the same way, you can believe in the historical reality of the resurrection, but the meaning of the resurrection has to change you. That's how you grow. We need to know the meaning. And this passage tells us the meaning. It tells us why Jesus died, why he rose again. Four very quick things. The resurrection assures us of courage, intimacy, deep community, and victory. Courage, intimacy, community, victory. And that's, if you take those four things and live that out as a community, that's gospel culture, Because Jesus is raised, we can be born. We can literally be reborn into this, into a movement of change. So first, we're going to go into courage. Verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus fully obeyed the Father. He fully obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. In the book of Philippians, the author, the apostle Paul, writes that Jesus was obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to Jesus it means that he is at the right hand of the throne of God. In Romans, the book of Romans, the apostle Paul writes that Jesus is now at the right hand of the throne of God. What does that mean? The right hand was the place of power. It's, the, it's the, uh, the position right next to the king, the prime ministerial position. It's the place where the person executes divine authority, royal authority. Back then you had monarchies. These monarchies were believed to be divinely appointed. And so the person who sits at the right hand of the king was the person who was able to exercise divine authority. And at the same time, it was a seat, a position of a favor. So this prime minister had the power to execute god's laws or the king's laws his decrees but also it was a seat where the king would listen to this person and it, he, it was a place of favor and paul writes that the jesus is now at the right hand of the throne of god he exercises divine power he intercedes it's the place of favor he speaks on behalf of other people the apostles creed we just read the apostles creed together It mimics a verse in Luke, in the book, The Gospel According to Luke, that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is ruling, but he's also seated. He's the perfect king. He's the perfect execution of God's authority, but at the same time, he's the perfect priest. He's speaking. He's always speaking on behalf of his people. Now, that's important. The high priest was the person who used to speak on behalf of the people, But the high priest, when he exercised his duties, when he conducted his duties of of the sacrifice, he always remained standing. He never sat down. But here, Jesus, he sits down at the right hand of God. Why? Because he said, it is finished. The work is done on the cross. The work is done. What Jesus is really saying here is, from now on, I run things here. I run, I run this world. You know, if you've been suffering or if you've ever been betrayed in your life, if you've ever experienced wrongdoing or injustice in your life, Jesus is saying, I suffered it too. I went all the way. You've been betrayed. I took betrayal all the way to the end. I experienced it to the end. That means we can go to him. And as dark as it may have seemed for Jesus, he allowed it, he submitted to it, and ultimately he, he said, you know, I don't, I don't just die. I give my life No one can take my life from me unless I give it on my own accord. He allowed it, he has submitted to it, and he did it so that evil ultimately one day all together will get swallowed up. There are people, if you can imagine, at the cross, Jesus is dying. This good man, at the least to these people, he was a teacher, he was a religious leader, he's this good man and he's dying. There are definitely people at the cross saying, what good could come of this? What good could come of this? I don't see any good in this. Some of you right now are looking at your life and you're saying, what good could come of these things that I'm experiencing right now? You're quaking. You're saying, there's no, I don't see any good that can come of this. But just because you can't see it, just because they couldn't see the good, it doesn't mean that there's no reason for it. That'd be terrible logic. If that's your conclusion, that's, a terrib- that's terrible logic. It's not wise, it's not intelligent to conclude that. God, in in the Bible it says that God works all things for the good. It doesn't mean that our suffering is good. We don't look for suffering. But it says that God works all these things for the good. So just because you can't see the good, it doesn't mean that no good actually exists. God works for the good. Stephen, the first martyr, in Acts chapter 7, he's stoned to death. He's the first Christian martyr. And during his trial and execution, how do you see Stephen? He's calm. In Acts chapter 6, it says that Stephen, his face was like the face of an angel. He was seized. They had brought up false witnesses to basically testify against him, and yet he was like the face of an angel. He displayed ultimate courage. Where did he get the calm, the resilience, the fearlessness, and the courage? Because he calls everybody out. He calls everybody out in the court. Where does he get that kind of fearlessness? In Acts chapter seven, as he's being stoned, the text says that he looked to heaven and he saw the glory of God and he actually cries out. He says, I see heaven and the son of man at the right hand of God. That's what he says. What he's saying here, I mean, why was he able to handle life with all of its suffering with such calm and fearlessness? I mean, at the first hint of the threat of, of our careers, we don't display calm and fearlessness. At the first hint of illness, bad, bad illness, or some tragedy in our lives, we don't de- demonstrate calm and fearlessness. How is it that Stephen, in the midst of being stoned to death, demonstrates calm and fearlessness? Because he saw that life wasn't pointless. When he looked out and he saw heaven open up and he saw that Jesus was at the right hand of God, what he's saying is he realized then and there he was assured life is not pointless. The world, though it seems like it's out of control, it's not out of control. He saw the son of God, somebody who loved him enough to die for him. Now he's in charge, which means that he's accepted. And that didn't leave him resigned he was, able to, he, was, he was fearless. He was able to call out wrong. He was able to call out injustice. He addressed it. Because the right hand of God was, was the place where the king was able to execute his authority. He trusted that. The world was not out of control. His life was not out of control. And, and the right hand of God was also the place of favor. He could speak. If you actually read the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen Praise for the people who are stoning him. It was a place of intercession, the favor of God. You know, if you see Jesus as just a teacher, or up until this point you see him as a good religious leader, a good role model, then his claims, what he claims about himself, are absolutely worthless to you. You know why? Because there's no one at the right hand of God then there's no one to intercede for you. And that means that life, like Albert Camus and all the existentialist authors, you know, and, and, and uh, the, the great literature of the world, especially in our day, it means that what they're saying is right. Life is out of control. And you can't just, if that's the case, you cannot be surprised by the tragedies of the world. The tragedies that are caused by our own brokenness. What's the answer to that brokenness? if if there's nobody at the right hand of god then that means you have every reason to not have confidence you have every reason to be insecure you have every reason to be at unrest to not have peace because at best jesus's teachings pour more responsibility on you you will not have courage you are not spoken for no one is praying for you not here or in heaven they go nowhere you should be afraid but if you come to jesus because of his claims not as a teacher not as a religious leader, but as your substitute, then you know he is your advocate and he is at the right hand. He is interceding for you. And everything that's coming to pass has not happened outside of his authority. That'll give you peace. There's no greater advocate. There's no greater advocate to have in your life than the king himself. Stephen, at At God's right hand is Jesus. It made him calm. It made him fearless. Jesus was his advocate. It made him absolutely calm and fearless. You know, the person that died for you, loved you, speaks for you, executes authority on your behalf, and he reigns. He is king. Life is not out of control. And to the degree that you believe that, you will be calm. You will be fearless. That's courage. The second part is intimacy. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's what he says. He says, I am with you. He says, first you gotta go and make disciples. When you make disciples, you're converting them. Then you've got to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. You have to mature them. Some people are coming to faith right now through you, and some people are maturing more in faith through your counsel, through your relationship, through your friendship. He says, when you are doing that, that's why we gather as a community. When you are doing that, I am present with you. You will feel the intimacy of my presence. That's one way to experience God, to experience the presence of God. When I preach it happens every week without fear. When I preach, evidently, inevitably, some people come to me and say, I was a little disappointed. I brought a friend with me today and, you know, I brought my friend. I had to tell him, I had to explain to him afterwards. He's not normally like this. This isn't his best. It wasn't one of his best sermons. He doesn't always preach like this. On the same weekend, inevitably, somebody else will always come to me and say, You know, I really heard the gospel preached. You know how I feel at the end of that? What's wrong with these people? <laughs> They're schizo here. You know, I hate your sermon. I love your sermon. I hate your sermon. I love your sermon. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is not like Napoleon. He's not like Napoleon. He's dead. So when you read Napoleon's story, you know, you you get some idea or some understanding of what Napoleon was like as a person when he was alive. That's not how he is. Jesus is alive. He's, exp- he's explaining here the meaning of the resurrection. He is alive, and because he's alive, when you read the accounts of Jesus, when the gospel's being taught, when the gospel's being preached, when you're with friends, and you're talking about the gospel, or you're talking about what Jesus uh, intends for you in your life, there he's present. He's present with you. He's present when the work of the gospel is being done. When you hear preaching, when you're reflecting on scripture, even alone, when you're reading scripture intently, Jesus is present. Jesus is there. In the book of Luke, way at the end, the last chapter, we have this account of the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And there they encounter Jesus. And they don't realize it's Jesus at the time, so they're just walking with him because Jesus has been glorified, his body's been renewed, and they're walking with him. And at the climax of that text, Jesus opens up the scriptures and starts to explain everything from the Bible, from the Old Testament. He explains how everything points to him. And what they say at the end is, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? When the scripture's being taught, when the Bible's being taught, when you're talking about the gospel, when you're learning about the gospel, when you're reflecting on the gospel, Jesus is present and your heart will burn. You're gonna experience God. He's there. Right now, if you're considering what it means to be a Christian, he's there with you. Right now, if you're thinking about how do I bring this gospel to my friend? Do I do it relationally? How do I do this? I'm gonna mess up. Right there, he's with you. That's why when you say, you know, this sermon was terrible, that's my fault. That's the preacher's fault. Don't let anybody tell you different. That's the preacher's fault. But when you say, I really heard the gospel today. I really met God today. God is present. That's why. You really did meet God. Jesus is present with you. Because he's resurrected, it's more than a teaching. It's more than moralistic teaching. It's more than just a, a set of lessons on how to become a better person. there's spiritual intimacy. There's reality here. This is a true reality, the deeper reality. When you're reading and listening, hearing about the Bible, hearing about Jesus, reflecting on Christ, when the ministry of the gospel is taking place, he comes to you. That's a promise. Don't be afraid to share on one hand. Don't be afraid to share. You know, to, to people who are maturing about wanting to mature, Jesus is at the right hand. So you can be calm. You can be fearless. But he's also present. He's there. And he's speaking. Has very little to do with who you are and where you are. It's very little to do. You know, if you, you lack confidence, you know, I'm afraid to share because I like, Jesus is present. He's there with you. And that's why we don't just read the Bible as like a few takeaways before we just walk away. You know, I'm just going to read it a few minutes before I get on the train or something like that. You, you know, I just need some inspiration. You're just coming to Jesus as a teacher then. You're just coming to Jesus as a role model. You need the Bible to meditate on it, to reflect on it. That's why you can't just read the Bible like a novel you know, or some sort of uh, status update. You can't do that. You know, um, You need to be able to sit down. You need to be able to reflect. Jesus is going to come to you. He's going to be present with you. If you don't know how to pray, pray and say make yourself real because there Jesus is present. There's a possibility of deep access to God through Jesus because Jesus is present. That's intimacy, spiritual intimacy, deep intimacy. Now, the third point is we can experience community, real community. He says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, And that word surely, in the King James Version of the Bible, he says, and lo, I am with you. We don't use language like that. And lo, I am with you. What's that word lo mean? L-O. In the ESV, you know, the English Standard Version, he says, behold, surprise. You should take attention to this. Take note of this. I am with you to the very end of the age. Now, in this mid-Atlantic coastal region of America, we're on the coast, so we're part of the blue states in America, and if you're a part of the blue states on the coastal section, in the mid-Atlantic section of America, you are very individualistic, and when you hear, and surely, and lo, I am with you, to the, always to the very end of the age, you say, ah, Jesus is with me, he's with me, so when I'm jogging, he's with me. When I'm in the office, typing away on my Excel spreadsheet, he is with me. When I'm in Baltimore, he is with me. That's not what he's saying here. I mean, it's true, he is with you, but that's not what he's emphasizing here. What he's saying here is, I am with you, plural. I am with you all, plural. Because I'm alive, the best way you can come to learn about me, you can learn by reading about me, you can learn by reflecting on me, you can ref- learn by meditating, you can, but the best way that you can learn is to learn about me through community. Think about it. You have a friend. Some of you have some close friends. When you're with one friend, you say, it's like nothing's ever changed. We could just pick up right where we left off. They just draw out a certain person, a certain type of person. When you're with a community of friends, your closest friends, it's always joyful. Why? Because they they each bring out full dimensions, different dimensions of who you are. Your best friends will do that. And if it's like that with you, with finite dimensions. Imagine what it's like to be able to learn about God. You will need community. If you need community to bring out all of you, you need community, certainly you're going to need community to bring out all of God. It's not enough. 80% of Americans believe that you can worship without going to church. You can experience God without going to church. On one sense, they're right, because you can experience God. But there's nothing like experiencing God in community. You need community. That's why we do worship. We don't do worship here the way we do it. You know, if you know anything about the structure, we took very, very careful attention to the way we structured out our worship because we wanted, on one hand, every portion of the worship to be renewing. But there's nothing like being renewed together as one community. There's nothing like that because it draws out. Every one of you will draw out a different aspect of the character of God. And it's infinite. And we'll all learn about that together. Community groups are so important for that reason. And, and uh, you know, every American, eight percent of Americans, they hold to the great, evan- uh, the great Commission. They look at that and they say, oh, that's just a passage on evangelism. But really, the heart of the Great Commission is what? Jesus is present. He says, and lo, I am with you all. He's present with us intimately and also in community. Deep corporate community. Now, Very few of us, I bet you almost none of us ever came to believe in Jesus by just reading the word of God by themselves or by meditating on it. You just read it and you say, now I'm a believer. None of us, I bet you none of us did for those of us who believe in Christ. We came to Christ because there were people around us praying for us and explaining this book that makes no sense when we first come across it. Um, when, you, when you're in deep community, it's because they're bringing out the different dimensions of God, the different dimensions of renewal, the different dimensions of Christ, his character, what he did, and they're drawing it out, and God chose that person to speak with you, and, and as a result, what you're being drawn out, you yourself are being drawn out, and the Bible draws out Jesus through your community, and there the encounter happens. That's what's happening. Um... If you're married, or if you're preparing to be married, you know you know that movie Jerry Maguire. It's one of my favorite movies, Jerry Maguire. It's an old movie, came out in the late '90s, early 2000s. Uh, you know that phrase, "You complete me," and you know when you when you look and you gaze into the eyes of your you know partner, and you say, "You complete me." That's partly a lie. Okay, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble here. Uh, it's partly a lie, because on one hand, there is completion. There is completion. You know, the body and the soul and the finances and all the struggles and the sufferings, they all come together. And in a sense, what was once just in part now becomes fuller. But think about it. If you really want to be a good husband, if you really want to be a good wife, you have to be married to Jesus first. That's what the Bible always says that. You have to understand what it means to see Jesus as the true bridegroom, not just as an example. You literally have to be in union with him in every way. And to do that, it takes community because to draw out the fullness of Christ, you need more than just your husband. You need more than just your wife. You need more than just your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You need community, deep, rich community. And so if you're here in in this early stage, I'm telling, I'm imploring you, I'm begging you, you need to join a community group. You need to be plugged in. You know, we're blessed here because I'd say 80% of our congregation right now is plugged in to a community group. And if you're looking for a community group, check, you know, I know it sounds like I'm I'm promoting like consumerism here. Check out the community groups. Each one of them have different, you know, dynamic qualities. You know, I'm I'm blessed to know that they're all dynamic. But they all bring, they all have different dynamic qualities. Check them out. Plug in. You gotta plug into the ministry of the church. And and plug into doing things in community. And not just here, but the whole of God's community, even outside. And some of you are doing rich, wonderful work. Uh, for the gospel, and that is so important because it draws out, again, different dimensions of God's character. Very important. Um, Lastly, we talked about intimacy. We talked about community. um, We talked about um, what it means uh, that Jesus is the judge. He is the ruler. He is the king. But Jesus says, I am present with you all, and I am at the end of the world. And this part is amazing. He promises victory. He assures us a victory. For Christians, the end of this story, the life that we live, the end of the story is really the beginning of new life. It's the beginning of new life. It brings the entire story that started in Genesis and it's gonna consummate itself in Revelation. And your story is plugged into all that. That story, when it comes to an end, brings you into newness, True completion. That's the end of suffering. It's going to make sense of all of your suffering right now. You know what makes a great story, a great drama? Everything in the beginning looks dark, whether it's a romantic comedy or whether it's some epic drama. It always has this flavor. In order for it to be a great story, it's got to start out where everything looks very dark. Something was good, then it gets broken, and it gets very, very dark, very, very bleak. And then there's this ironic turn of events, And all of a sudden, you know that ironic turn of events? It was there all along, actually. You just didn't see it at the time. You didn't see it coming. And then there's this amazing reversal. And that reversal makes it great. And you walk away and you say, that was great. The modern world says, that's fake. Life is not really like that. Life is bleak. Life is going to end bleak. There's nothingness at the end. But Jesus in this passage says what? One day... At the end, I will be there. the very end of the age, I'm going to be with you to the end. And even at the end, I will be there. This story is going to end and all suffering and brokenness will end with it. And at the end, you will be there and I will be there. I am at the heart of that world's happy ending. That's what he says. The end of history is going to be good and I will be there. Lord of the Rings, I'm not sure if this was actually in the, the movie, but I know it's in the book. Lord of the Rings, at the end, the ring, if you know anything about the story, the ring, everything's about this ring. And this ring has to be destroyed, and finally it gets destroyed. And as soon as it gets destroyed, Samwise Gamgee, this, 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 uh, this fool of a, of, a, of a character, he awakens. Like it was all a dream, he awakens. And there he sees Gandalf, and Gandalf was dead. He died actually very early on in the story, but he sees Gandalf again, and he says, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. And then he says, wait, is everything sad going to come untrue? One day, there will be an ultimate reversal. Everything you ever lost in your life, it's gonna get found again. Everything that's ever been broken in your life will be restored into a fullness that you did not even have when you first had it before it broke. It's all going to get reversed. Everything broken will be renewed. In Revelation 21, Jesus, he stands there and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. He declares it out. He doesn't say, Behold, surprise, take note. He doesn't say, I'm making all new things. I'm going to do away with everything. I'm just going to make it, make a new thing. That's not what he says. He says, I am making all things new. He's restoring every one of us to completion, to fullness one day, once and for all. And we're gonna say, I thought I was dead. I thought you were dead. And we're gonna stare and gaze at each other and we're gonna say, everything sad has become untrue, has been undone. The gospel is the birth of Christ and the resurrection of Christ uh, and the cross of Christ. It's filled with tragedy. That story, the culmination of Christian faith, filled with tragedy. But it's going to end with the ultimate comedy, the ultimate comedy, the ultimate joy. The suffering is going to end. Wrath is going to be swallowed up with evil. Joy is going to be the only thing that remains. Holiness and the presence of God is the only thing that we're gonna have in our lives and if if you really believe that, that should heal you. You know, if you live in guilt, that should heal you. That hope should heal you. If you live constantly telling yourself, I can never get it right, that hope should heal you because it's true. Jesus died and he rose again from the dead. If he didn't die or if he didn't rise again from the dead, then you shouldn't believe anything that he said. Why believe anything that the Bible says? Why even try to live a moral life? Because it's all going to be bleak anyway, but if he really lived and he really died, if this is an account of history, then all of this is true. And you should believe everything that he said. One day a superhero is going to come and he's going to bring peace and true justice and he's going to restore the entire world and it's going to give us victory. That's what it means. It means victory. If you don't believe that, justice does not prevail. If you don't believe that, there is no justice. You should never even wince at any surprising event that happens in the world that's tragic. All the tragedies that we see in the news, that shouldn't faze you one bit because there is no justice in the end. But if you believe in Christ, that means one day justice will prevail. There is an end to all suffering. And that's going to make you more compassionate to all the things that are going on, all the brokenness that's going on in the world your heart will still hope because you know that there's going to be a victory. Otherwise, your heart is going to grow bitter. It's going to grow sour. You're going to, you, you have reason to be afraid. Now, Jesus says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. How do you know that? How do you know that? How do you trust that? He says, you can trust this. How do you trust that? It's because we know that Jesus went to the end. The end of our personal story. He knows it. He knows every one of our stories. You know why? Because on the cross, He knew knew what it took. exactly what it took to restore each and every one of you. He knows everything you're driven by. He knows everything you're afraid of. He knows everything that you're suffering. He's enduring it. He knew exactly what it takes to bring you home. And he paid it all in one shot. He's been through every bookend of your life. He's been through time to time. That's what he's been through. He's been through every pain and through every joy. In Gethsemane, Jesus is praying. It's right before he goes to the cross, he's praying. And he says, now my heart is troubled to the point of death. He says, my heart is troubled to the point of death. You know what he's doing at that moment in his prayer, as he's praying? He's reflecting on all that he's going to suffer for the world. He's taking everything that he knows about his people, every one of us, and what it's going to take to redeem us. Literally the weight of the world is on his shoulders and and he's suffering. He's literally suffering the cross twice because he suffered it before he ever went to the cross. He's reflecting on it and he knows The weight of the world is on him and he says, my heart is troubled to the point of death. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm quaking. I'm quaking. And on the cross, the king, the son, the prince of peace, the, the king of kings, the man who sits at the right hand of God, the judge, the ultimate judge of the world, our advocate, he's on the cross and there a darkness came over the land. It says, and the earth started quaking. There was a real physical earthquake and there was real darkness. And what's happening on the cross at that moment was what? Jesus is being plunged into a storm. Hanging on the cross, he's plunged into a storm, and there he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I see before me a physical quaking, but now my heart is quaking. My heart is quaking. I'm being plunged into the deep storm. God has literally departed from me. There's no one that's going to stand at the right hand of God now to intercede for me. No one's going to speak on my behalf. No one's going to uh, cry out for me. No one's going to execute divine authority. What I actually deserved, I'm not going to get on the cross at this point. I've lost complete intimacy with God. I've lost complete community. Everybody in the world is rejecting me right now. They're hurling insults at me. They're spitting at me. They're mocking me. And now God Himself has departed from me, which means that the Trinity at that moment was torn apart, ripped apart at the seams. God had abandoned them. The Spirit had abandoned them. And He is alone, completely, utterly alone. He says, No community. No community. I've lost. There's no one to intercede for me. I've lost intimacy. I've lost access. I've lost community. He says, literally, I've lost the battle. No victory. I've lost all these things. You know why you can go to Jesus? You can go to Jesus because he's been through it all. He's lost. You've suffered loss. Jesus lost ultimately. He lost in an ultimate way, in a consummate way. And when he says, it is finished, he says, it is finished, Here's a Hebrew phrase for the debt is paid. The transaction is made. He's saying, I've been to all the corners of sin and doubt and shame and guilt. I've suffered it all, every grief. Everything that our sins deserved, I've suffered now. And he did it so that you can have joy, so that you can have life, so that you can have freedom, so that you can have access Jesus lost community so that you can have true community, deep community. You don't have to use each other anymore because now you're genuinely loved and you're genuinely accepted. And because of that, on that basis, when you come together as friends, you're not using each other for intimacy anymore. You're serving each other. He says, I've lost intimacy with God. Why? So that you can have access and intimacy with God. Spiritual reality. You can experience that every day when you're reading the Bible, every day when you're talking amongst friends, every day when you come to church. You have the possibility of that access. To the extent that He lost it, you can have it. That's yours. Wow. He says, I will now speak for them. He says, Father, forgive them, even to the point of death. Jesus is worshiping, He calls God His God. And he says, forgive them. He's constantly speaking for us, always speaking for us. We walk away in guilt. We run. We hide. We sometimes use our goodness to cover over our weaknesses. It's a way of hiding from God because we feel good enough, so he has to accept us. In other words, God kind of owes us, but that's not what he's saying. He says, you don't have to do that anymore. You can even repent, not just of being the bad things that we do, but even the reason why you do the good things. You can be genuinely renewed. You can experience God. Courage, intimacy, community, victory, all at once accomplished for us on the cross. He explains it in the Great Commission. It's not just about evangelism. It's a culture, a culture of transformation and renewal. In other words, if you take those four things, courage, intimacy, community, victory, you plant that into your soul, the deepest reaches of your soul. Every day, plant it into your career. Plant it into your friendships. Plant it into your marriage. Plant it into the way you raise your children. You do that. There he is with us. There he, and you will have courage, and to the end, he says, I will walk with you. I will meet you there at the end. There you'll be. That's power. That's victory. If you're scared, then he's just a teacher to you. If you doubt, he's just a teacher to you. He's just a role model. That's pressure. Because that means it's up to you to live up to that access, and you can't get it. If you could do it on your own, why would Jesus even choose to come? He had to come to give you the access, but he was glad to come. That's why we worship him, because we love. We can love. We're not hammered into worship. We're drawn into worship because he was glad to do it for us. Let him in. Let him in deeper. Let him speak to you. Let him speak deeply. Will you listen to him? Will you trust him? will you believe him? Let's pray.